0: Welcome to the New Books Network. The history of the single payer health care reform movement in the United States is deep and nuanced and the grassroots movements at the state and national level are varied and all of their histories are fascinating. The eras of healthcare reform from the Clinton through Trump years are the topic of conversation in this sprawling conversation with Dr. Lindy Hearn, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Hawaii. We discuss her years of research and the book Single-Payer Healthcare Reform grassroots mobilization, and the turn against establishment politics in the Medicare for All movement. This is an absolutely crucial book for anyone interested in the healthcare reform grassroots movements and also the history of the 1990s through the present day. We go through each era of the history of healthcare reform in this country throughout the conversation, and without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Lindy Hearn. Dr. Lindy Hearn, thank you for joining me today.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: Excellent, thank you very much. I am uh, delighted that you're here and I'm excited to talk about your work. And I'm wondering if you can just spend a moment and introduce yourself and what you do to the audience a little bit.
1: Hi, everyone. I am Lindy Hearn. I am an associate professor in sociology and uh, department chair of sociology at the University of Hawaii at Hilo. I study movements for healthcare reform. I've also studied other things like roller derby and responses to natural disasters. We have a lot of those in Hawaii. But yeah, I do a lot. I'm an applied sociologist.
0: You and I are both Mizzou grads. So what's up to Mizzou, University of Missouri, Columbia? What am I to
1: do?
0: Z-O-U? You gotta do it. You gotta do it. So I would love to know a little bit about your academic story, your trajectory, if you will, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about some of the major stepping stones in your education and career to kind of get you to the point to where you are now.
1: I actually uh, give a talk about this sometimes. It's called From PK to Sociologist. Do you know what a PK is?
0: Yeah, pre-kindergarten, right? Like like, uh, preschool?
1: That could be it, but it actually means preacher's kid. It's sort of a double meaning. And as a preacher's kid, my dad is a retired United Methodist pastor, very progressive. I think that was foundational in my progress becoming a sociologist because I was always taught to think critically about the things I was learning, to question everything, which uh, is a big thing in sociology, um, and also to uh, be oriented towards social justice creating a socially just society. So I, you know, sort of put that as foundational in my career path. Um, it wasn't until I was in grad school that I actually found out that my dad has a degree in sociology. I thought it was always just religion. and But uh, I was actually in college and for a little bit I was pre-vet and sociology at the same time. I had these sort of two very different ideas about how my life was going to go. And behind that was I wanted to be an actor. Started as a theater major and decided I didn't want to do theater anymore, but I still kind of wanted to be an actor. So initially, I decided to go with sociology because I thought, hey, that's good for acting, right? If I decide to go be an actor after college, uh, knowing how people work and, you know, their motivations and all that is good for acting. So, and I enjoyed my sociology classes. So I decided to major in sociology. And then I think it was my junior year of college, a sociologist uh, named William Julius Wilson came to my uh, school and gave a talk. And he talked about advising President Clinton during the welfare reform debate and Clinton had not listened to him about what to do about welfare reform, but he had advised him. And that's when I sort of had my eureka moment of, hey, sociology can do things and actually work for social justice. Um, and that's when I decided to go to grad school. In grad school, I found a lot of um, inspiration and autonomy from my professors at Mizzou. I'm still in touch with a lot of them. And finished in 2012. I was a visiting assistant professor at Manchester University in Indiana for a year. And then I got my tenure track position here in Hawaii. And I've been here ever since.
0: And I am so excited to chat with you about your one of your areas of academic research, which is healthcare reform. And you have a book, Single-Payer Healthcare Reform, Grassroots Mobilization and the Turn Against Establishment Politics in the Medicare for All Movement. There's so many things I want to know about this book. I recently was engrossed on four airplane rides to and from Florida <laughs> on vacation, and I was just sucked into the story of this complex decades long movement. I, I remember what my eureka moment was, but I'm wondering what yours was when you realized that sort of like the U.S. is this kind of outlier as far as how wealthy countries approach healthcare for citizens in this country, like kind of like what's your 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 entry point into this project? and where you're like, whoa, this is, there's really something here worth examining in great detail?
1: Um, Well, that actually started, that picks up in, you know, the story I just told about my path. That actually started in undergrad, you know, William Julius Wilson came to the school, gave a talk, I got really interested in his work, I ended up doing a senior thesis on his body of work, and one of the things, the points that he comes to in his work is that, uh, to really address things like poverty and inequality and so on, you need universal health care. Um, and so that's when I started thinking about universal health care as a way to address some other issues that I was concerned about, uh, like poverty and inequality and so on. So uh, when I got to grad school, you know, right away, that was kind of my topic, my focus, what I wanted to get into. I wanted to study healthcare reform. I didn't know how I wanted to study that or what direction that would take, you know, I could have uh, gone really different directions with that. But um, I was in a seminar dealing with social movements, my second semester of graduate school with Dr. Clarence Lowe. And in that seminar, we had a lot of autonomy to study a movement of our choice, you know, while reading the assigned texts and all that. And that's when I really started studying uh, healthcare reform and you know, figuring out first what was going on in Missouri, uh, what was going on nationally, and so on. And I decided to study a specific uh, social movement organization in Missouri for my project for that class, Missourians for single payer. And that became this much larger project that was first my master's thesis, became my you know PhD work, and then became this book ten years after my PhD, and going back into the archival stuff—that's you know decades of information that I collected and data that I collected over the mm. course of those years.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, and I'm wondering about this uh, more about the early years of healthcare activism in Missouri for you, like how you get in, because you know as a person who grew up in St. Louis and who did my undergrad at Mizzou and who was a teacher in Missouri for years and who cares deeply about the state. I'm always curious about the relevance of Missouri and you were involved in like the healthcare activism scene in Missouri. And I I just am curious about how all of that went, some experiences, some stories, whatever lingers with you as far as like being involved in that group in my home state.
1: Well, when I decided that I wanted to study healthcare reform in Missouri, Um, You know, that first started with just cold calling people uh, to see what was going on. I had another mentor at the time, Andrew Twaddle, uh, who was a medical sociologist who had worked in the area and had written a book about health care reform around the world. And so he connected with me with some people. So it really started with, you know, me, um, I think I was 22 or 23 at the time. Uh, just calling people (laughs) and saying hi I'm a graduate student at University of Missouri I really am interested in this issue can I meet with you and talk with you Um, and sort of just doing those you know that informal stage of just trying to find a place to enter you know that world and what I found through doing that is that the most active sort of thing that was happening in Missouri at the time was surrounding single payer. I was already interested in single payer um, as an option for health care reform, because based on what I had read, it seemed like something that would be more possible uh, in our context. And then it also was partially maybe because of that, right, um, it was the most active thing happening in Missouri at the time. So. One of the people I called called, uh, was Julia Lamborn. I have a little story at the start of the book about her uh, specifically. And I met her, I remember driving, it was a, I don't know if you remember that big uh, truck stop that's sort of between St. Louis and Columbia. Yeah,
0: Warrenton, probably.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that was it. So we decided to meet there because she was in St. Louis and I was in Columbia. She's very nice on the phone, you know, uh, but I was still really nervous, you know, going to meet this person um, who was the president of this organization I wanted to uh, look at. And I met her there. We had a nice uh, sort of informal conversation. She sort of, you know, kind of accepted me into her world at that point. Initially, though, (laughs) she did call me her stalker (laughs) because she wasn't (laughs) really sure about who I was or why I was there or why, you know. So uh, I thought that was interesting that, uh, you know, I mean, it wasn't like a mean thing. It was just like, oh, here's Lindy. She's my stalker. She's following me around, you know. And then eventually I became known as an intern. And then, you know, I just progressed through the organization. I actually have a paper about that from stalker to board member. You know, as I learned more, as I became more involved, as I contributed more, you know, my position within the organizations uh, changed, you know, that was both rewarding for the activist side of myself and for the researcher side of myself, because as you build rapport and trust and so on, you get access to so much more, you know, of the on the ground things that are happening when social movements, you know, do their work.
0: And I noticed that the book is dedicated to Julia. Landborn, uh, but also to Marilyn Clement. Who is Marilyn?
1: Uh, Marilyn is another really uh, strong uh, player in the single-payer movement more nationally. Uh, she started an organization called Healthcare Now, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. It'll, that focus is still today on um, national single-payer legislation. Also supports state efforts, but you know it's really a national organization She had worked with Representative John Conyers during the civil rights movement. And so when he decided to propose a national bill in the early 2000s, he talked to Marilyn about, you know, getting a grassroots uh, movement going to support it. And that's what she did. Uh, Unfortunately, neither one of them aren't with us any longer. But Julia always used to tell me, and I don't want to tear up when I say this, but Julia always used to tell me. that she would say, Lindy, I don't know if we'll see healthcare reform, if we'll see single payer in my lifetime, but I sure as hell hope that we see it in yours. And awesome. you know, that's kind of my saying today. <laughs> I sure as hell hope, hope we see it in mine, but also um, those that are younger than me. So
0: yeah, I've got an eight-year-old, maybe she'll see it in hers, you know? Yeah, um, yeah
1: but it just points to sort of, you know, the work that activists do and they do it um, in a lot of ways, in altruistic ways, right? They don't know that they'll benefit from it, but they want to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's th- a thankless grind for so many yeah. groups and organizations across the activist spectrum. Um, yeah. I'm curious about some terms. So the term single payer keeps, you know, getting lobbed around here. And this is like a thing where I think a lot of people would be sh- like scared to admit that they don't really know the precise definition of what it is that single payer healthcare is, and I'm wondering if you can give us the lowdown and the definition and tell us a little bit about that so we can be specific here with the term.
1: Well, single payer is basically a system of financing for healthcare that's financed by one entity, and that entity is typically a state, the, the state. So, um, you know, all health insurance is based on a shared risk pool. You pay into a risk pool. You have a big health emergency or costly health incident, you know, it's paid out of that pool of money, right? Mm -hmm. In a single payer system, everyone would be in the same pool. So the idea is that if everyone's in the same pool, everyone um, is really going to want that pool to be the best pool that it can be, right? You're going to want to have slides. and diving boards, the best pool ever, right? (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, you know, because everybody's going to be using that pool. Um, So it's a non-tiered system paid by one entity that is typically the state. Um, You know, there's still a lot of debate, and I get into that in the book, about what it actually is, because it operates differently in different places. But it's one of the three ways that universal healthcare actually exists in the world today. The other two ways are universal multipayer, where you have multiple payers, but everyone is covered. Um, and those typically exist um, in continental European countries. They grew out of like trade unionism or trade guilds and so on. And then somewhere along the line, each country realized, oh, well, there are certain professions that don't have insurance because they're not in a guild, so they created a uh, publicly financed system that would cover everyone else. Um, so there's a really specific history to the development of those multi-care systems, uh, very different from our own history. And then on the other end of the continuum, um, there is our uh, national health services or socialized medicine. So that's where the state actually um, owns most of the medical facilities, employees, uh, you know, the medical practitioners and so on. A single-payer system is right between those. So in a single-payer system, the financing is public for all basic care, right? You might have private insurance for things that are not basic care, like cosmetic surgery or something like that, right? our All basic care is covered by the same financer, and that's typically the state. Facilities can be public or private, just like they are now. Um, you know, we have Private facilities, we have public facilities in the VA and so on, um, but that would remain the same. There is still a debate in the movement whether any facilities, public or private, should be for profit. And that's one of the contentious issues that still exists within the movement. Uh, you know, that's something that they'll figure out eventually, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so what I'm what I'm gathering in the book as well, too, when I looked at this, I like how you diagrammed it. And you sort of have this continuum in the book where single payer is kind of right in the middle, which you also just said. And like, this is an extraordinarily uh, non-radical idea, but these things are presented to the world as extraordinarily politicized. Wow. And, you know, what gives with this? You have this very moderate, like uh, right in the middle kind of a, a, like suggestion, but yet it's extraordinarily politicized. Why?
1: Well, yeah, you're right. It's not, um, it's it's framed as being radical in our context, but really it is a very um, sort of conservative option for creating healthcare reform. It's economically conservative because it saves money. You know, um, it's uh, not such a radical change in infrastructure like socialized medicine would be. That would be a much more radical change. But sometimes people conflate uh, socialized medicine with single payer um, and use that as sort of, you know, the boogeyman. You know, we don't want that. We don't want that. We're a capitalist society. We can't have socialized medicine. Well, even though NHS, you know, is working, you know, pretty well in other capitalist societies like the United Kingdom. But it's used as sort of this boogeyman to, to make people fear single payer, um, and that's you know in relation to the public, and that sort of uh, issue you know you can see that play out through the whole history of the movement. How activists deal with that narrative, how they uh, you know reinform the public so that they do maybe start to think of single payer as the conservative option, uh, even to today where you see businesses coming more and more on board. Was seeing single payer as a conservative option that would save them money as businesses. Now, the businesses that don't want that option are obviously insurance and uh, insurance companies, right? In the United States, uh, make billions in profits every year. Also pharmaceutical companies pay more for pharmaceuticals in the United States than other places that have these kinds of systems. So those two interests really uh, work very hard <laughs> Uh, during all eras of healthcare reform, to make people think of single payer as some really radical idea that just would take away our freedom, and you know all those narratives that are used, all those frames that are used, people work really hard and have a lot of resources to do that. Um, gotcha. Both in the media and campaign financing, all of that.
0: You know, in the subtitle of the book, it also has the term Medicare for all, which was a massive term that got thrown around in the 2016 through 2020 presidential years. And, you know, I know we're probably going to get into that more later on, uh, but I'm wondering if you can just define like Medicare for all and how it fits into this. Is that sort of a synonymous thing with single payer?
1: Okay, well, this is a little complicated throughout the book, I talk about the term single payer and how there's always been contention over even using that term, because like you said, still people don't know what it means. Um, Even people in the movement, you know, I go back 10-15 years and I would talk to people and say, so why do you support this? And I remember one woman said, oh, well, I don't think single parents should have to pay for healthcare for everyone, but something's got to change, mm. right? Uh, and she was at the conference, right? So uh, there, there have been, uh, you know, debates in the movement over the years about, well, should we even use this term single payer? And, you know, this decision was to stay closely tied to that term, but we saw in sort of like 2009, 2010, this um, discussion of, well, why don't we use Medicare for all? Why don't we use that as the term for what we want? And it was, you know, a debatable issue within the movement because Medicare is not perfect. There are flaws in our current Medicare system. So there was a fear about using that as, um, you know, a way to get people to recognize what single care is and then connecting it to, you know, flaws in the system that increase as more privatization comes into that system. So what uh, activists like to say now is expanded and improved Medicare for all, because what um, they're proposing is actually not Medicare as we see it now, but Medicare would, that would cover not only everyone, but would cover dental, would cover vision, would have no premiums, deductibles, or co-pays, be much less complicated than the current Medicare system is with you know, all the different parts and so on don't really want to get into that <laughs> that's fine. discussion so they started using the term Medicare for all but expanded and improved Medicare for all now in the 2016 election something interesting happened and I talk about this in sort of the second to last chapter of the book where all of the Democratic candidates really had to place themselves in relation to Medicare for all right it was a huge change. That was a 2020 election cycle where that happened. <laughs> it started in 2016 with the first campaign of Bernie Sanders. 2020, they're starting to use Medicare for all. And they're using that term to talk about proposals that aren't what single-payer proponents would call Medicare for all. So Medicare for all who want it, right? Where Medicare is created as a public option for people who don't have private insurance, maintaining private insurance, which is something that, you know, single-payer supporters, you know, emphatically disagree with. You know, Sanders in the uh, presidential debates during that period, the 2020 period, started really specifying single-payer Medicare for all is what I'm talking about. What h- often happens within the movement is these terms that they start to use will be co-opted and sort of um, used by other uh uh, you know, politicians, groups, and so on to talk about something that's not what they're talking about. Like universal healthcare became a sort of sponge-like term for anything that expanded healthcare, but would not be truly universal.
0: The complicated nature of how that can get so confusing to citizens as well as wild. If you're watching a presidential debate as a well meaning citizen who wishes to be informed about the issues moving forward in the country, and people are bandying about like a variety of terms like the public option, Medicare for all, single payer. It just becomes this amorphous blob where there's not clarity and specificity because that's not how our political system works. It's sound bites and winning. So, um, you know, that's just an observation that I have. Something that is really interesting about the U.S. to me, and I use the term interesting in sort of a tragic way here, so bear with me, uh, is the way that the burden for health care is on businesses in a lot of the ways to provide healthcare to their employees, like I've I've had friends own businesses like bike shops, you know what I mean, and they're like, yeah. yeah, providing healthcare to employees is super difficult, and I've seen firsthand what that can do. And I wonder if you can just like reflect a little bit on the challenges of running a business or company in the U.S. and wanting to do right by your employees and what that looks like for businesses in the country.
1: Going back to Julia, who I was talking about before, um, as a little sort of way to get into this topic. Um, she actually became involved in the movement because she was a small business owner. Mm. So her first entry into the movement was um, based on this issue that they were having. They owned an oil recycling company in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, she and her husband. They really had a commitment to providing, you know, this is the early 1990s, They had a real commitment to providing health insurance for their employees. Uh, but every year, you know, their costs for the insurance would go up and the benefits would go down and it would cut into their bottom line. And when you're a small business, you know, you don't have that much wiggle room as far as, you know, being in the red or being in the black. I think those are the business terms. Yeah. <laughs> um and, you know, so changes in how much you're paying for healthcare care um, can really impact your bottom line and whether or not you're able to stay in business. And more and more so, that is affecting larger businesses as well. And uh, larger businesses are also starting to rethink, um, you know, well, maybe something else would be better. Now, if you're large enough, maybe you're self-insured and, you know, that's different. But for small businesses, it does become a real burden as far as, um, you know, paying uh, the premiums and healthcare costs for your employees. And then they might have that insurance and get sick and not be able to work um, and you're still paying for the insurance. And then they go bankrupt, too, because they have a 20 percent copay that they can't afford. Right. That that copay keeps going up and going up and going up and so on. Um, So it does become a a huge issue for businesses uh, to be able to stay in business in the United States and also to be competitive on a global market where you know, businesses in other countries don't have to worry about those things as much. There's actually um, you know, just in the last, I'd say, five to 10 years, there's been a more mass mobilization of businesses in support of single payer Wendell Potter, who was actually an insurance executive, is one of the people that is spearheading this. There's an organization called Business Leaders for the Transformation of Healthcare. Uh, It used to be called Business for Medicare for All. Um, I'm not sure exactly why they changed the name, but they're still pretty emphatically um, pro-Medicare for All on their website. And there are many businesses listed on the website as supporting. They've created some documentaries. One is called "Fix It," that is about the business case for single-payer. So, if anyone you know wants something maybe more interesting to get into to learn about uh, that, that's a really good documentary. It's free online.
0: I mean, seriously, like I think all the time, and you know, you may have seen me like write about this on social media or something at one point, but I'm like, how many people? don't go into business with a really good idea because they know that like providing healthcare to employees is gonna be like a a massively steep climb or how many like married couples who are unhappy in the world stay married because of healthcare and things like that. And I'm just like, there's so much like stifled creativity and stifled business in the country because of this massive like roadblock of healthcare, which is irrelevant to so many business operations. And it always just confused, it has always confused me. Ever since I learned about this, I was like, this is so confusing why businesses would have to do this when it has nothing to do with the business itself.
1: Yeah, and it can create this situation for employees as well called uh, job lock, where um, you know you have insurance through your current employment. Maybe your employment isn't good. Maybe you're not satisfied there but you're afraid to to leave and find um, other employment because your insurance there uh, won't transfer to your next place. You know, we kind of dealt with the issue of pre-existing conditions more so with the ACA and so on. But it used to be that if you had a pre-existing condition and you changed insurance, they could deny coverage for that condition. Um, And they still will if they can figure out how, (laughs) Um, if they can get around uh, new rules and so on. But yeah, so people stay in dead-end jobs because they have insurance, Um, they don't start, maybe they don't leave their job and start a business because they won't have insurance themselves, right? Not just providing insurance for their employees, but insurance for themselves. And if you have any kind of chronic condition, that is just, you know, taken up to a higher level. And as far as, I think there's also, you know, the issue of marriage lock that you were talking about. If your, you know, insurance is dependent on your spouse, Maybe you don't want to leave a bad situation because you would lose your insurance or your, and so on. But there's also the issue of people not getting married, right? Because of insurance. Uh, I don't know if I can get personal here, but uh, my partner, Jamie, and I may never get married because he is uh, unemployed due to a brain injury and has Medicaid. And if we got married, he would no longer be able to have that Medicaid. It would be, you know, (laughs) an extensive cost for us, Um, there are people that have gotten divorced because one of them has a health condition. They're going bankrupt with the insurance they have. The only way the person can get, uh, you know, Medicaid coverage is if they get divorced and they're no longer combined incomes. Um, You know, it'll be interesting to see how often that has happened. I don't think that data exists yet, but it definitely does happen. So, uh, there are a multitude of issues that arise because of this situation
0: the ripple effect of how much this could transform people's lives in this country is is just monumental. Something that I'm really, that I really love about your book is the focus on grassroots mobilization, because this is an issue that's so big that it can make all of us feel completely powerless, right? I struggle with this a lot. I'm like, what? I can't fix anything. I'm one guy, like the older I get, like the more I learn about the world, like, wow, the things are so catastrophically broken. How can I do anything to do it, be involved in any of this? And you have this Excellent typology in the book of activist organizations at the grassroots level, participatory democratic organizations, centralized organizations, and professional organizations. And I'm wondering if you can talk to me a little bit about these grassroots organizations that you talk about in the book.
1: Well, participatory democratic organizations is sort of where most truly grassroots organizations start because, you know, usually they start pretty small and build up. Um, Some grassroots organizations start with a lot of funding and so on, so they don't start at that level, but then the argument can be made where, well, did it really grow from the grassroots or is it AstroTurf or whatever, Uh, which is AstroTurf is a term used for organizations that claim to be grassroots but are really funded from the top. Participatory Democratic organizations. Uh, this is all related to how decisions are made, um, so those organizations, everyone that's involved is going to have a voice in the decision-making process, and ideally that happens through consensus. You know, if you're making a decision based on consensus, um, that's a lot easier to do with 10 people than even 20 or 30 or 100 or a 1,000, right? Almost impossible. One really interesting movement that tried to make that possible because um, that was sort of the ends they were also trying to achieve was the Occupy Wall Street movement. Uh, They really were oriented towards participatory decision making because that was the end they were wanting to achieve. So they became, they came up with different ways to do that with massive groups of people. I don't know if you witnessed any of that or, you know, Mm -hmm. saw any of that with the, you know people microphones where, you know, the person that was speaking would say something and then it would go out, everybody repeating it until so the people at the edge could hear, you know, all of those different ways um, to make sure everyone is hearing and everyone was playing a role in the decision-making process. But most organizations as they grow, you know, decision-making becomes much more difficult uh, to do in a consensus style way. So some form of hierarchy develops. And so the next sort of stage is for an organization to become centralized. So that's where the hierarchy is developing. That's where you might see the development of a board of directors for the organization, an executive with either a chair or president of the organization. Those higher up on the hierarchy are sort of doing the more daily decision-making for the organizations. Whereas the membership, the mass membership might uh, vote on things, right? That are coming down from, um, you know, above and they might be able to propose things and so on, but they're not necessarily there in a consensus way making decisions for the organization. But that type of organization is still volunteer-based. That's a key distinction between that type and the next type, uh, which is professional organizations or professionalized organizations. And that's um, when an organization actually has a paid staff that does the everyday sort of Decision making for the organization. You still have some kind of elected um, board or executive. You still have membership, uh, but you have a paid staff that does the everyday organizing for the organization. You know, and as organizations become bigger and more well-funded, they're more likely to become professionalized. I mean, it takes funding to pay a staff, right? Um, and you know, that can be really efficient organizations cuz you have people that that's their job right and the other types it's all volunteer uh you know people are doing that um on the side they're still having to work they're still having to like you know do their daily tasks and do the uh, organizing tasks on top of that um when you have a professionalized organization you have a paid staff where that is their job they're doing that every day day in and day out they're getting very good at it cuz that's what their focus is you know the sort of downside to that is that sometimes the people who would benefit most from the goals of the organization become left out of the process mm. in that type of organization. That's one, that's not my critique. That's sort of a general critique within social movements. A uh, scholarship uh, that they can become uh, distanced from those who would benefit from the goals the most uh, and sort of lo- they lose their voice within the organization. Um, so anyways, there, there, there are... Uh, you know, pluses and minuses for each type. And each type is uh, sort of necessary, you know, at different stages in the organizational process.
0: Well, okay. So the book is organized. It has this uh, eras of the, like, basically from the 90s up until now. And I know that every single era we could talk about for two hours per era easily, and so, I want to do hit some some highlights, right? Some things yeah. that you, as somebody who studied this for years and years, thinks that each thinks that everybody who's listening should know about the different eras, right? So I know that this is not a comprehensive review of what happened in these years, um, and you have so much more in the book, which people can find and read if they would like to know the, uh, very specific yeah. things, as well as continue to do their own learning on them. But I want to hit the the Clinton years and Newt Gingrich. I want to hit uh, the George W. Bush years and Michael Moore, sicko. I want to hit the Obama campaign and the Obama presidency and then Bernie. Okay, so let's start with the Clinton era and Newt. So tell me a little bit about the the who, what, when, where, why kind of like bullet point overview of what was going on during the Clinton years that really matters.
1: Okay. Well, you know, just to preface all of this, um, the book, I focus on this issue of the relationship between grassroots mobilization and opportunity. And I talk about the narrative practice of activists, how they define opportunity, how they understand opportunity and how that is related to specific actions. Sure. Sure. Going into the early 1990s, there wasn't um, a really developed single pair movement in the United States. That term wasn't even really used until the late 80s, early 90s. Systems that we call single pair had existed like in Canada and Sweden and so on. But that term, like to, that term as a, as a useful way to talk about them didn't actually develop until later. In the early 1990s, that's really where we started to see the development of uh, single payer, specifically organizations. And they really developed around the opportunity that was presented by the Clinton campaign. You know, Clinton was sort of seen as this man of the people, and he was going to change things. It was uh, sort of an inspirational campaign for a lot of people. And he had healthcare reform as sort of a key element of his campaign agenda. So that was viewed as an opportunity by single payer activists to, uh, you know, mobilize and sort of, uh, you know, increase support for single payer. What actually happened was very different, right? When once Clinton was elected, um, he got sort of distracted by things like NAFTA. Didn't go right into health care reform. When he did, it was a very secretive process. Everyone was sort of alienated from that process. Single pair activists tell specific stories about seeing Hillary Clinton um, give a speech and someone saying something about single pair and her just saying that's not on the table, right? Mm. Alienated by that, you know, by not having a voice in the process. But really, a lot of people didn't have a voice in the process. It was a very secretive process. Um, While that secretive process was going on, um, uh, Senator Wellstone Representative McDermott and Conyers they already had a single payer bill uh, in both the Senate and the House called American Health Security. And it actually had, I think, around 90 co-sponsors already, had more co-sponsors than any other bill. So that was sort of a really important mobilizing place and opportunity for single-payer activists at the time as well. Now, when the Clinton uh, proposal came out, it was not anywhere close to single-payer. It's what was called managed competition which is a um, sort of complicated thing to get your head around. And, you know, it was like 2000 pages, <laughs> complicated. Uh, people couldn't really understand it. They started trying to get public support for it after it was done. Right. So it came out of this sort of alienating process and then tried to develop public support for it. In the end, it pretty much got nowhere. The Clinton health security uh, proposal, uh, you know, died. <laughs> Basically, and that was sort of declared as the death of uh, healthcare reform at the national level at the time. You know, single payer activists had tried to use these single payer bills. Well, first they actually tried to they saw the Clinton as potential or the Clinton administration as potential allies, and they actually tried to like move them towards single payer in their proposal. But then that process was so alienating, and so on. um, They started focusing on these specifically single payer bills. Uh, The American Health Security Act and and trying to mobilize support for that. And then, when death occurred at the national level, they started focusing more on state level possibilities, the primary one being in California at the time, uh, Proposition 186. Then, um, you know, the midterm election happened, and uh, all of a sudden, there's this Republican controlled um, legislature and this narrative of the contract with America. I call it a narrative because it includes all of these stories about family values and so on. But really, what it was was, you know, a policy agenda that would, um, you know, bring more free market mechanisms into public programs, uh, you know, family values centered, um, that sort of thing. And what happened is that single payer supporters um, actually call that the CWA era. I do start this section with neutered. That was actually a term used in the movement for that yeah. era because they felt their movement had been neutered by Newt Gingrich. So single-payer supporters shifted focus to uh, really protecting uh, public programs like Medicare and Medicaid uh, from the CWA agenda um, and shifted away from single-payer, uh, from supporting single-payer specifically to the extent where um, one of the primary national organizations of the period, can, by uh, the 2000 campaign, um, was not using the term single-payer anymore. They were using the term healthcare justice. Arguably, single-payer, they formed around single-payer during the Clinton attempts, uh, during the Clinton era, during the early Clinton era, during uh, the late 1990s, they shifted away to the extent where they were no longer talking about single payer. They were talking about healthcare justice, which caused a lot of controversy within the single payer, the grassroots single payer movement. I specifically talk about Missouri. Missouri actually has one of the longest running uh, single payer organizations in the country at the state level and uh, state single payer bills. Um, You can really see in the story of Missourians for single-payer how that national level um, issue affected the state level. Um, There was a lot of division within the state. You know, state chapters broke apart because some wanted to shift with UCAN to talking about healthcare justice. Some wanted to stay with single-payer. That really, uh, initially, that era was defined as sort of positive in some ways, for the movement because they had grown. They had single-payer organizations that they hadn't had before, right? Uh, so coming out of like 1994 into 1995, there was a lot of discourse and narrative about how this was positive, you know, we can keep doing it. But then going into the late 2000s, coming out of contract with America, you that's where you really see a lot of um, disorganization and sort of abeyance uh, occurring within the single-payer movement
0: gotcha. Well, so then we go into the Bush years. You mentioned 2000. So let's talk a little bit about Bush. And for me, I don't recall much about the early years of the Bush presidency. I he was elected when I was in high school and so I don't really I didn't really pay attention because I was just like a high school junior and I was an idiot. So I don't really remember a whole heck of a lot, but during the Bush presidency I believe 2005 maybe is when the movie sicko comes out. So by then I was in college and that movie was extremely important for me because I grew up in, you know, my whole life be like, go to the doctor go to the dentist. You got your insurance card, you got your insurance card. My mom would hand it over and I thoughtlessly would just be like, Oh, there's the insurance card. I never thought about it. I never thought about the copay thing. And then that movie made me rethink that. And then in 2008, Eight, I got a chance to move to the UK, and I saw that in action because I was a teacher in England right. with a with a National Health Service uh, card as an immigrant to the country. So I realized that as an immigrant, I was getting better health care as an immigrant than I was in the country where I grew up, where I, while I was in England, I aged out of my parents' health insurance plan. So I was in the weird position of going home to visit them with no insurance and then going back to the UK and having national insurance. So it was a very weird time for me, this 2005 to 2008 years. And, you know, what is some important stuff about like those Bush years? Because, you know, that's my experience right there. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, several very important things happened during the Bush years. And, you know, it was really interesting. That was the time period where I actually started my field research. So where I was, because I started my field research in 2004, um, where I was actually going and attending meetings and doing interviews and all of that, you know, the prior stuff. You know, I was a kid in the Clinton era, like all of that's uh, oral history interviews and archival data and so on. But this is the period where I actually I'm in it. I'm in the thick of it um, starting in 2004 and some really important things happened during that period. Um, probably the most important thing that happened during that period was that the Internet. <laughs> right the rise of the internet and in connection with that uh digital video technology so in social movements there's always this challenge of getting your perspective to the public right in the clinton era the you know most popular way to do that or the uh you know most key way to do that was through television but Mm -hmm. television very expensive to get advertisements on TV. They did raise some money. I talk about that in the book to do some of that, but you know, and to get in the mainstream press, all of that is difficult during the Clinton era. Um, During the Bush era, we see the rise of the internet. We see uh, the rise of digital video technology, which gives um, activists a way to share their perspective, their experiences, their stories with a larger audience. in a way that's more accessible and so on. I do talk a little bit about the digital divide, right? Because there, there is not, it wasn't the same for everyone, right? Yeah. As far as um, accessing and knowing how to use it and so on, but still it was a pretty positive force uh, within the movement. You also saw uh, new organizations develop during that era. Uh, one of those I mentioned before is Healthcare Now. Um, that's the organization I've been uh, really involved with. Um, as I said, it formed around support of HR 676, the Connors bill at the time. Um, has become a national force uh, for grassroots organizing for uh, single payer. Is still that today. Uh, other organizations formed that I talk about in the book that really um, created this, you know, network of organizations supporting single payer in a context where. Single payer was not going to happen, right? Single payer was not going to happen in the Bush context. Yeah, Uh, it was not going to happen in the war on on terror context, but it was not going to happen, you know, all of these things that were going on at the time. Uh, But single payer activists found a way to use those things and sort of formulate those things into narratives that gave them hope that in the future it could be possible, right? Mm -hmm. How can we use this to mobilize others to increase support for this thing? Um, And one of those places, where that happened was around sicko so uh sicko actually came out in 2007 you said 2005 oh, but it's interesting. i thought it was earlier yeah it's interesting that you said 2005 because it actually became part of the narrative practice of the movement around 2005 2006 oh michael moore is going to do this movie about healthcare, and it's going to be you know we don't know what it's going to be yet but it's going to be something and it's going to mm. be some news right um so you know, a year, two years before the film even comes out, um, I saw, you know, single-payer activists talking about how it could be a useful place to mobilize and increase public support uh, for single-payer. The film itself does not talk about single-payer, right, or single-payer in the United States. It talks about other systems around the world but does not argue for what should happen in the United States. Michael Moore later came out and said, you know, supportive things, but um, and he actually provided DVD copies of Sicko to any grassroots organizer in the movement that wanted it to have house parties and so on to show it. So that was pretty cool. But um so Sicko became this thing around which uh, you know, organization was happening, it became a, an opportunity, what I call cultural opportunity. Um uh, during that period, once it came out, Uh, single peer uh, activists, you know, they would host premiere events, they would, uh, when it came out on DVD, host house parties. So it became something to organize around, but perhaps even more important was the, what I call cultural agents that came out of that. Um, One of those is Donna Smith. She was one of the um, patients featured in the film, and she became an organizer within the single pair movement um, is actually a pretty good friend of mine now um, and. Uh, so she worked for she created a couple organizations she worked for a couple organizations she worked for national nurses united as an organizer. She worked for progressive democrats of America as an organizer, so you saw a lot of you know these really passionate people come out of that film experience. Um, or just from seeing the film and decide to become healthcare activists and decide to support single care. Um, So it was both an opportunity and it was sort of uh, an outcome, right, Uh, where you did see growth happen because of that film. So I do spend, you know, some time talking about it and its importance during that era. So, you know, that resulted in the single payer movement growing and developing during that era a very negative political opportunity right there was a lot of grassroots opportunity to grow and develop their base um, leading into the next era which I see assume- the Obama
0: I know like and you and you got to tell me too about the difference between the campaign and like promises and then what comes to fruition because I'm really curious about this pre- and post-election Obama time?
1: Yeah. Um, so those things that happened during the Bush era sort of created this situation where the single parent movement was ready to act on the opportunity presented by the Obama campaign. So during the Clinton era, that really developed in response to the Clinton campaign, those organizations and so on the obama era those organizations had already been going pretty strong right for at least a couple of years before the obama campaign started but uh you know the campaign itself uh was sort of similar in that you know obama was a uh, you know candidate of change he was seen as a man of the people right all of these things were part of his candidacy and he had said um it was 2005, but um, he was at an AFL-CIO convention. This was before, you know, a year or two before his candidacy at least. Um, And he uh, said he was a supporter of single payer healthcare. There's a video of this, right? This isn't just a story that people tell, right? There's a video of this. And so that um, that story in the video became sort of, uh, you know, Uh, light going off for single-payer activists that, hey, this person could be the candidate and he supports single-payer, right? So that was a massive um, opportunity uh, for them to mobilize in support of single-payer with the idea that there would be a presidential candidate and possibly a president who would support the goals of the movement, which would be, you know, something that had not ever happened before. so during the candidacy, um, single peer activists, you know, organizations because of their tax status could not support, you know, specific candidates for the most part. Uh, but activists as individuals really got on board with the Obama campaign and supporting that, um, and uh, doing what they could to make sure he was first the candidate and then elected. Um, is there anything else I want to say? Is there anything else you want me to talk about about the candidacy?
0: Well, were there any specific promises he was making while running like in that are important to what comes later with the ACA?
1: Well, he definitely was making promises to reform healthcare, right? Uh during the campaign. During the campaign he did not say that he supported single payer.
0: Okay, interesting. So that's what but I was curious he, about.
1: He Said single payer would be the way to go if you could start from scratch.
0: Oh, okay. But
1: then he qualified that way but we can't start from scratch so where are we right yeah which so during the campaign he shifted away from being you know supportive of single-payer
0: which um, is interesting because you talked earlier about the the way that single-payer could be one of the easier paths into universal health care within the united states given the system that we currently have
1: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah that's interesting Yeah, but instead, what happened, uh, you know, Obama was elected, healthcare reform did become uh, the sort of focus of the agenda. Um, Instead, what happened was a system that, um, and ideas that would keep the current system and current infrastructure intact. So, uh, a way to um, ideally cover everyone but still through private insurance and still through employer-based insurance. So um, it's actually, what happened is actually a conservative plan. Um, In Massachusetts, they had done something similar several years earlier uh, uh, when uh, Romney was governor.
0: Governor Um, Romney. (laughs) Uh,
1: Based in uh, individual mandates and so on, and single-payer activists going into this era were, you know, there just can't be mandates, there cannot be mandates to buy private insurance, because then you're just, you know, upholding private insurance and forcing people to pay into it. Um, but, you know, that's where it went. Um, that, that ended up being a, a major factor in the Affordable Care Act. Um, another thing that happened in the process leading into that was alienation. So, you know, single-payer activists had experienced uh alienation during the Clinton era, but that was sort of a general alienation from the process. Um that was a little well a little bit different. It was quite a bit different during the Obama era. Um they experienced alienation again, but in a very sort of particular way and almost a targeted way, uh, because single pair became sort of the straw man, the thing that Obama had to set himself as opposed to, mm-hmm. right? The process was going forward. Um, so instead of just not talking about it at all, it became the thing that you know you talk against. Well, my plan is not single payer because it's this, right? Okay? Um, and you had these things that were going on. Summits were single payer. Uh, politicians were not invited until like you know there were lots of phone calls made by activists, and maybe one or two would be invited. Um, healthcare hearings uh, led by Max Baucus. Um, where, you know, insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies are invited to talk and have a seat at the table, but people supporting uh single payer or um, other forms uh, like single payer were not invited. So you saw this sort of um, particular alienation within the single payer movement during that period. And what that resulted in is like more uh, radical and sort of performance-based tactics developing where they really you know in the clinton era they thought okay we can still be allies of these people right we can still get them to move our way it was interesting during the obama era uh you know the enemy i talk a lot about defining the enemy in the narrative um you know in the clinton era it it still remains okay insurance and pharmaceutical companies Uh, that's the enemy the single payer right and the obama era it became this idea of politics as usual Um, as the enemy of single payer. And that included Democrats, right? Yep. Democrats that were part of this process of politics as usual that, you know, really um, gave corporate interests more of a voice in the process than grassroots interests and public interests and so on. And so um, that definition of the enemy uh, sort of had, uh lasting effects within the movement and i think is tied to um you know one of the interesting things that came out of the data for me you know i'm in it i'm in it i'm in it i'm seeing things happening but then you know when you finally write the book you go back and you're like and you know things have happened after that and you're like oh wow this is tied to what we're seeing now with anti-establishment politics and even the rise of Trump right people getting so frustrated with the way that politics is working Uh, during the Obama era, where there was this massive hope for change, and that, you know, people would have voices that didn't have voices before, and then that not happening. um, That really uh, is related to, you know, everything that came after.
0: Yeah, I mean, you think about 2016 to now, right? So we have the candidacy of Bernie Sanders, who was Extraordinarily outspoken on this issue, but he doesn't become the nominee. And then you have Trump on his side saying in those video interviews, "We're going to cover everybody. We're going to cover everybody." So Trump is essentially promising healthcare for all, right? Yeah. And that, so that doesn't happen. And then we have Biden now, where I I can't really tell if much is happening in the way of healthcare reform. A whole heck of a lot, like. Um I admittedly don't know a whole heck of a lot at the moment about that but this Bernie Trump Biden era that we've had the last like 6 years has been just very confusing for me. And I'm well, wondering if you get tell me a little bit about like the last like 5 6 years.
1: Well the Bernie stuff is really interesting. Um you know a lot of the public narrative about healthcare reform and you know mass media even in a lot of scholarship, is like, oh well, the Bernie campaign, it made the single payer move, or it made Medicare for all, right? It, you know, that's what it is, and I think that's really a problematic way to think about social movements. But it seems to be something that happens a lot, where you have this candidate or this era, where things come to the forefront, and people think that it's because of that person or that mm. era, right? Um, and not recognizing all of the really, really, really hard work and long-term work that's gone on on the ground to lead to that era. And I think the Bernie campaign in 2016 is a really good place to really be able to make that case because um, so Obama era, they start critiquing politics as usual. We've got to change the political system, right? We've got to change the way politics work in order to get our goals achieved it's no longer working within on the inside it's no longer just okay we got to get these people these politicians to, to support our bill it's we've got to change the political system we've got to change the way politics works and part of that was a run burning run campaign um that was started in about 2014 um i started seeing sort of like Uh, you know, predecessors to this in 2013, but it really kind of started in 2014 and then, you know, took off in 2015. But uh, the idea was to have a campaign to get Bernie Sanders to run for president, uh, to put single payer and Medicare for all on the national radar, right, to open the window to that discussion. So there was a really concerted, concerted effort by several organizations to get bernie to run for president so it wasn't like oh he ran for president and then single pair of the movement took off the movement actually pushed him to run for
0: president Mm.
1: so that that would happen you see the difference
0: yeah that's amazing
1: so that was a strategy that they were um focusing on to change politics as usual and it kind of worked. <laughs> Not in the way they wanted, <laughs> but it kind of worked, right? Bernie did yeah. run for the presidency. Um, he did get single payer on the national stage, right? In ways that it hadn't been before. Um, but instead of Bernie and that first that first campaign wasn't like no, I think going into it, nobody really thought Bernie could get elected, even in a single payer movement, even people in the run Bernie run campaign or didn't think it was likely he had very little name recognition he hadn't even played a central role in the narrative of the single payer movement until relatively recently i don't know if you've got that thread in the book yeah he comes up every once in a while but it's other people like conyers and so on that are really key politicians bernie didn't really come become a key central figure in the narrative until later um so that first campaign was really not about him winning so much as getting a single pair into the national uh, discourse and also pushing Democrats left, right, pushing Democrats to the left because um, they've been shifting right for so long. Yeah. Uh, instead, what happens is we got Trump, right? Yeah. Um, so that's another thing, another place where you think, okay. Trump is elected. Um, He's saying he's going to repeal the ACA while at the same time saying everyone's going to have health (laughs) care. Like, how? He never says how. Right. Uh, He's not going to support single payer. Um, You know, it's a very negative political context, right? Negative political opportunity to get single payer um, enacted. But just like when uh, Bush was reelected, in 2004 wait was it 2004 yeah um you know i talk about in the book how there was all this like new interest in the movement just like that when trump was elected there was mass mobilization and resistance to trump and his policies uh at the grassroots level and that actually became really significant grassroots opportunity for activists to mobilize So when activists are uh, from, you know, that maybe aren't in the single payer movement are mobilizing to protect the ACA, activists use that as a way to mobilize for single payer. While at the same time, you know, there was a lot of debate within the movement. Should we protect the ACA? Should we not, should we ignore it? Should we let it go? Should we work against it? Um, But for all all of those perspectives, it was an opportunity to mobilize and to actually build support for single payer. And so you actually see, during the Trump era, uh, more uh, participation, more focus on single-payer in the media and so on, Um, more participation in grassroots, uh, more economic uh, support of single-payer organizations. Um, So it actually became an opportunity for single-payer activists. Now, I don't know if you wanted me to talk about specifically what Trump did or did not do you know he tried to pass a couple bills um American Health Security no that's not it well I
0: know that I know, that, that out, I know right? he didn't cover everybody American
1: Health Care Act okay so there's all <laughs> all these filled up so many names okay uh so the first thing was the American Health Care Act um which would have kept some of the things in the ACA like the pre-existing condition stuff uh, but would have gotten rid of the individual mandate, would have gotten rid of um, increased federal funding for Medicaid, like all, you know, would have resulted in a lot of people losing their health insurance. It didn't pass. Um, then there's this really tense moment where they tried to uh, do a skinny bill, yep. a bill like less in it, uh, called the Healthcare Freedom Act. And like they didn't even give it passed through the House. And then it went to Senate and they didn't even give the Senate enough time to read it before the vote occurred. Yeah. Do you remember that at all?
0: Sure do. Um, Yeah.
1: And then the vote happened. And I remember sitting in my living room. I was actually back in Missouri at the time. It was right around this time of year, wasn't it? Um, And sitting with my mom watching it on C-SPAN and just like watching the votes come in because the ACA did did expand coverage to more people and I know people who without the coverage they get from the ACA would have been you know in dire straits so you know I didn't want that to happen And I remember watching it and just being so intense and then John McCain right who was believed to be one of the deciding votes on it he walked up to the podium and he just went
0: yeah the thumbs down
1: oh, I stood up and I yelled and it was, you know, it was a good moment. Uh, but then later on in a policy specifically about taxes, they did, um, you know, sort of negate the individual mandates, uh, portion, which, you know, whether or not the individual mandate to buy for-profit insurance is a good thing, you know, uh, that's a big debate and a big, controversy. Right. but, uh, overturning that did result in people actually losing or um, no longer having health insurance. Uh,
0: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) and then uh, during this Trump presidency, this pandemic happens and having access to affordable health care during a global pandemic seems to me like a good idea. And we seem to have emerged sort of from this global pandemic uh, in a country that seems not that close to achieving universal health care legislation right now, as of the recording of this in August of 2022. And so this is a topic that I struggle to have hope talking about. Uh, and I'm wondering if you can attempt to give me some hope on this topic.
1: Okay, well, um, I'm actually working on a paper about, I presented a couple times about, you know, single payer during the COVID era. And there actually has been um, uh, some increase in support and increase in participation within the movement. And the last chapter, or second to last chapter in the book, I talk about success, um, and what success means within a social movement. Uh, One of the reviews for the book was like, okay, so you have all this here, but it's a big failure. And, you know, when I was telling the qualitative story of it, I, you know, I thought that I, I I showed that, oh, this is growing. It's, you know, there's hope this is growing there's changes happening, but um, you know, the person that was reviewing the book or that person, you know, said it's a big failure. Why is, why is it important? And so I had two weeks between getting the reviews back because there weren't a lot of changes that were wanted in the reviews, uh, and my editor gave me two weeks to do any you know revisions that I wanted to do, and then to send her the final version. So I had two weeks, and I was like, okay, so I'm not showing what I need to show here to show that there is hope, that there is you know success happening within the movement. So I wrote that I uh, that entire chapter where I get into the more quantitative aspects. Of success, I wrote that entire chapter <laughs> in that uh, two-week period. So I—that's when I did the analysis of, um, you know, presidential debates, the analysis of news media, the analysis of financial records. Like I done, you know, preliminary stuff on that, but I did a, a chunk of it then and wrote that chapter uh, to try to show that. Okay, so we don't have single payer. Um, but we are closer to having single payer than we were before. There is more support for single payer than there ever has been in the past. Um, you know, we can see that through the sponsorship of the single payer bills currently at the federal level. Um, you know, when you look at that sponsorship, it's important not just to look at the, you know, total number of co-sponsors, but also to look at the original co-sponsors, okay? That's where you really see the change that's happening because in the past, um, every time there was a transition uh, into a new legislative session, single-payer activists had to reconvince all of the people who had sponsored it before to sponsor it again. Whereas now what we're seeing is that the the original co-sponsors, the people that sign on before it is even introduced, is going up and up and up. Right. And that's a really good sign that there is not only support, but consistent support. Um, Another thing that single payer activists have been working on is getting political support to be really vocal about that support and to be really active about the support instead of just signing on um, to a bill. We see that in um, the hearings that have been happening in Congress. There have been several hearings and uh, committees. Uh, about Medicare for All, there was just one, I think, May 22nd on uh, the Senate Budget Commit- Committee, uh, the first one in that committee in 30 years about Medicare for All. Um, if you're going to get a bill onto the floor to a vote and to pass, you have to go through these committee uh, hearings and committee processes, right? And so just getting into the stage of having those committee hearings is a You know, symbolic symbolic is an example of success within the movement. Um, You know, if you look at public opinion about single payer through things like the Kaiser uh, Family Foundation um, studies and other studies as well. I use those specifically because to you know maintain reliability. um, You know, you see increasing uh, public support for single payer. just all of these things that I talk about in that chapter really uh, to me are hopeful because we do see increasing support. Um, Even though, you know, today it's hard to feel hopeful about, uh, you know, policy and uh, progressive policy because of things that have been happening. Um, I do feel hopeful because of all of those reasons. And Wonderful. Yeah. Producing hope is one of the most important, uh, you know, aspects of activism that's often overlooked, uh, you know, because if you don't have hope that the change can happen, then why work for it?
0: Wonderful. Well, I have loved this book, uh, Single-Payer Healthcare Reform, Grassroots Mobilization and the Turn Against Establishment Politics and the Medicare for All Movement. I see that there is a paperback version available as well which is marvelous. So anybody out there looking for this, it's uh, in Kindle hardback and paperback. So it's accessible. And um, I think that if you're interested in this topic that you should definitely check this book out because it is a riveting story. And your reviewer who was like, but everything's a big failure. I'm like, the history behind this is is like stunning honestly. And so I think that your reviewer who was like, and it's a big failure. Why should anybody care? I think that's an extremely unfortunate view because I was really amazed at how readable and interesting and, uh, you know, up and down the history of this is. So I'm grateful to you for, for. Yeah.
1: I I do want to clarify the review was good. (laughs) Yeah. It was also like, you know, why should people care?
0: Yeah, (laughs) I mean.
1: Your viewer likes the book and you approved of it and everything, but was also like, so I didn't have to write that chapter. My editor was fine with it as is. Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm going to write this chapter and like.
0: (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me and giving me such a huge chunk of your time and so many details and stories. I strongly recommend people check out this book if you're interested. And uh, just thank you, Dr. Lindy Hearn, for joining me and having this conversation. It means a lot.
1: You're welcome. I'm glad to be here.